I'm joined as ever by my co-host Colin Yo. Colin, how are you doing? I'm a bit scared to ask. I'm, I'm cold. I'm cold. If, if only people could see the two of us on. Our, we, we, we do this with a, a video link, which we, we don't show people so we can kind of wave at each other and stuff. I'm sitting in a sort of big puffer jacket and a hat and, and you tell me you've got the bloody air con on in Australia where you are. <laughs> ah. I'm fine, Sonia. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I've I've seen that it's snowing in London. I'm just trying not to feel too guilty. Anyway, this is our roundup of December 2023, a year I'm certainly glad to see the back of as far as the world of immigration and asylum is concerned. Uh, we're starting off with asylum and Colin, you're going to cover... <laughs> the Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration Bill and the Treaty. Yes, thanks for giving me this, Sonia. Uh, <laughs> I feel a bit of a fraud, actually, because these are things that you wrote up um, for the website as well. So I'm, I'm kind of drawing very heavily on your work here. Um, so starting with the Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration Bill, it's only got nine clauses, and not all of those are sort of important or effective. Essentially, it's about legislating to force the courts to recognise that Rwanda is a safe country as far as Parliament is concerned. Obviously, that being despite the recent Supreme Court judgment that Rwanda is not a safe country. Clause one is, is, we're kind of getting used to this, it's kind of fluff. So it's, it's about the purpose of the bill. It doesn't really have a kind of direct legislative effect. And ironically, it's quite a kind of um, EU way of, of legislating, you know, having a kind of um, preliminary clauses to, to, to legislation. The, 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 the sort of difficulties start really at clause two, where the Home Office decision makers and the courts and tribunals are told that they must, quote, conclusively treat, close quote, Rwanda as a safe country. And that the courts and tribunals cannot consider claims challenging removal to Rwanda on the grounds that it's not a safe country. And that is specifically said to include claims raising the risk of refoulement, which is the the risk of basically being sent on to to, to other countries. Clause 3 disapplies certain sections of the Human Rights Act 1998, uh, including on interpretation of convention rights and interpretation of legislation. And then Clause 4 sets out that individual decisions still have to be made taking into account the circumstances of each individual person. And it's kind of clause four and, and, and clause five allow potentially challenges to removal to Rwanda, essentially on the basis that you yourself would experience serious harm in Rwanda, actually in Rwanda itself, rather than being sent by Rwanda to another place. So for example, in the scenario where refugees were themselves at risk in Rwanda, if they were sent there, perhaps because um, the Rwandan government treated them very badly, or previous refugees had protested, and there was a risk of serious harm or something like that. Clause four and five, they both try to narrow that down even more than human rights law would normally be understood to, to apply. So there's some stuff about compelling evidence relating specifically to the person's particular individual circumstances. It's not really clear what compelling evidence means there, whether that's some sort of gloss on, on the sort of normal Article 3 approach. Probably not, I'd, I'd suggest. And there's also restrictions on the granting of interim relief. And that, that, that bit's quite complicated, actually, because it kind of interplays with the Illegal Migration Act 2023 and powers of that that aren't yet in force. And it kind of looks like what the bill 
bill is attempting to achieve is basically stopping judges from granting interim relief to people who are bunged onto a flight so that even if they bring a legal challenge, they're doing that from Rwanda, basically. And whether that's going to succeed or not is going to be one of the, the, the really key questions uh, with, with this legislation because um, the sort of timescales to the next election are, are, are relatively short now, getting shorter all the time. It's really quite a controversial piece of legislation, and to put it mildly. And yeah, I, I, I'm struggling to, to to really believe that the government is is putting this, you know, trying to put this on the statute book because it's saying that Rwanda is safe and that Rwanda will stick to its treaty commitments, even though the Supreme Court, having definitively considered a lot of evidence, just concluded that that's not so. Um, so it's kind of um, legislating sort of false facts, essentially. And the government's justification for this is kind of that things have changed since the Supreme Court decision. So that leads us on to this, this second blog post, which is is also one of yours, Sonia, about what's in the treaty. So this this new treaty, which was very rapidly um, signed with Rwanda. And the point that you're making in this blog post is really that that there's almost nothing new in the treaty compared to the previous memorandum of understanding. So it's kind of elevated in on the legal plane in the sense that it's a treaty, not just a document of some sort. So it has more legal force. But, you know, one of the key findings that the Supreme Court made is that Rwanda doesn't stick to its treaty commitments in any event. So it's hard to see how that makes much difference. And then there was this kind of succession of Rwandan spokesmen and ambassadors and so on who were saying they disagreed with the Supreme Court decision. There was nothing wrong with Rwanda and that this didn't really change anything anyway. And it's kind of almost making the claimant's case for them with this stuff, saying that basically nothing has really changed. So it's a pretty depressing state of affairs. And things have calmed down a little bit at kind of over Christmas, we don't quite know what the timescale is for this, but at some point in the pretty near future, this is all going to ramp back up again, and the government is going to be forcing this through Parliament in very short order, probably. Sonia, have you got anything that I've missed that you want to sort of specifically flag up or anything like that? No, it's just more nonsense. We just need to wait and see what happens with Parliament, and then wait and see what happens with the courts, and hope that we have a new government before any of those processes conclude. Uh, next is me, and the article is... Home Secretary must set out plan to eliminate use of hotels for lone refugee children. So there's been a lot of litigation around this particular issue. I mentioned this case as coming up a couple of podcasts ago, I think. So the litigation has been around challenging the use of hotels to accommodate unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. So previously, when I discussed this, I think that was in the context of litigation that had been brought by ECPAT, which is a children's anti-trafficking charity, against Kent County Council and the Home Secretary. And in that case, it was concluded that the routine use of hotels in this way was unlawful. So this case now is the one that Kent County Council brought against the Home Secretary in relation to the National Transfer Scheme, which essentially was about distributing these children throughout the UK to ease pressure on certain councils, uh, in particular Kent, where many of them arrive. So on the 27th of July last year, Kent County Council was found to have acted unlawfully by refusing to accept responsibility for some of the arriving children. So on that date, the High Court quashed the Kent Protocol, which was an unlawful agreement between the Council and the Home Office, 
which set a cap on the number of children that Kent would accept. So then in this case, the judge said that the Home Office had acted unlawfully in agreeing to the Kent Protocol, but since the date of the July hearing, they had been working with Kent County Council to reduce the number of children placed in hotels. The judge accepted that time was needed for the new arrangements with Kent County Council to be agreed, and rather ominously that the Home Secretary was entitled to have some time to consider whether to commence new provisions within the Illegal Migration Act, uh, and those would allow the Home Secretary to accommodate unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Um, But the judge did say that any new plan will only be lawful if the focus is on eliminating and not just reducing the use of hotels for children. Uh, And the judge also set out some minimum requirements to be met. Essentially, it looks like we may not necessarily be at the end of all of this yet. We're back to watch this space. But things are moving in the right direction. And as at October last year, there were 19 children still being kept in hotels, which is a substantial decrease from July. Um, Hopefully it's already down to zero. I'm not sure what the latest figures are. But yes, that is the latest update on that. The next one is um, I've been banging on for ages now about these evictions that have been happening, short notice evictions that have been happening to people who have been granted refugee status. Did I say the title? Refugees can now claim universal credit without a biometric residence permit. So someone sent me a freedom of information request where someone had asked the Department for Work and Pensions for a copy of their updated universal credit guidance on refugees and asylum seekers, specifically in relation to the update confirming acceptable evidence for refugees who haven't yet received their biometric residence permits. So this is very clearly a freedom of information request from someone who knows that this document exists and is just trying to make it public, which is an incredibly useful thing to do. And the response was some internal guidance that says that the application registration card and home office decision grant letter, so the letter granting refugee status, those two documents together can be used to claim universal credit where the refugee has not yet received their biometric residence permit. So then there is also a recent case, uh, the Supreme Court had just refused permission in this, and the Court of Appeal said that the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions policy of not providing advance payments for people without a national insurance number was unlawful. So it seems from all of this information that a refugee should be able to make a claim on receipt of the grant letter and also to receive advanced payments of universal credit without a national insurance number. If anyone has actually managed to negotiate these processes successfully, I would love to hear about it. So do let me know. Yeah, I, just to, to sort of butt in there quickly, I think this is why publication of these documents is vital because you know officials often, they just won't know this themselves because you know they need to know a huge amount of things. You know, when you talk about officials dealing with universal credit stuff, the regulations are, are massive. Um, they, they won't necessarily be familiar with absolutely every kind of scenario that comes in front of them like this. So you need this kind of document to convince officials <laughs> that this is what they're supposed to do uh, and advisors need access to this so that they can advise their clients. And so having a kind of policy that nobody knows about apart from officials who also don't know about it is no use at all. This is why this is so important that this 
stuff is in the public domain. Yeah, and I think as I even said um, in the article, the public facing webpage still had inaccurate information on it. Um, so yeah, it just you know really reiterates the point that you've just made. But before we move on as well, is, there's been isn't that there's been another development on this front because um, I th- we didn't cover it last month because it wasn't really it sort of happened right at the end of December I think didn't it? But um, you know that that blog post that you wrote back in August or September yeah. about this whole kind of eviction process. I think that's one of the kind of blog posts of the year, frankly, for, on, on free movement, because you really dug into what was going on. And it's been incredibly helpful for parliamentarians and, and charities and campaign groups and so on on this. And belatedly, there, had, there has been a, a change, at least back to the old status quo, I think. Is that right? Yes. And the reason we haven't covered it is because it's really difficult to figure out what has happened. I think I saw it, it's just been news coverage, basically. So I think I've put it into the newsletter, but I've not done an article. Um, So the Home Office, I think at one point they said that this was something they only did in August, which very much appears to be inaccurate. And even uh, when I've been drafting the newsletter, we're recording this on Monday the 8th, I've included some things from the big issue who are saying in practice, the charities they've spoken to are still not seeing that change. So there's a lot of mixed messages and nothing seems to have been, I mean, nothing was ever officially confirmed by the Home Office. They said nothing had changed throughout the entire time of, of all of this. So it, it's difficult to figure out whether the, which news reports are actually accurate about what the Home Office hasn't hasn't changed about this notice period. I think the one thing that is certain is even 28 days is not enough time for people to get their life up and running. Yeah, it's one of those things where we, people, will push, especially the Red Cross, were pushing for the 28-day period to be lengthened and ex- expanded because it wasn't enough. It suddenly got cut and now we're all going to be pleased that it's going back to 28 days, which was rubbish, in, it, which wasn't enough in the first place anyway. It's just, it's this kind of stuff that's absolutely exhausting with this government. But that's the thing, I, I feel like it kind of has backfired a bit because I think it's quite easy to say, well, actually 28 days isn't enough either I don't think anyone has said great 28 days now I think the campaign got so much momentum last year that hopefully people are able to use that to keep pushing hopefully successfully with the next government for a proper period for people to be able to get up on their feet and get going with their lives rather than being thrown out onto the street within a few weeks. It certainly has raised that issue of transition from yeah from home office accommodation to kind of local authority DWP support, hasn't it? So um, that hopefully is positive in the long run. Yeah, the big issue coverage has been exceptional on this issue. And then also the fact that The Guardian chose it as their Christmas appeal. So they had so much coverage on it as well. And that was around the time that this may or may not have changed back to the previous situation and that they were still able to cover it in a really effective way. I think it has backfired on the Home Office if they were doing this to make us grateful for the 28 days because it is a campaign that now hopefully has enough momentum to keep going. Oh, speaking of bad things that the Home Office has done, we're on to my other bugbear now, which is asylum withdrawals. Um, So this is something else that people will have read me going on and on about and Colin and both of us going on and on about in the podcast. In December, the Home Office changed their guidance on asylum withdrawals. So I did my usual of downloading both versions, running them through Draftable and looking at what changed. So the article is asylum withdrawals guidance amended to halve time given to explain non-attendance at interview. I deliberately chose a picture of a post box for this one as this is a process, the process I'm talking about is uh, invite to the substantive asylum 
interview, it is still largely reliant on a mail system that does not function properly anymore. Despite this, in December, the Home Office saw fit to halve the amount of time that they give to a person to explain why they have missed an interview. Now, as I'm sure lots of other people listening to this have experienced before. I have had cases where people have been given two days notice of an interview. And if that letter is then delayed in the post, and letters can be delayed for a lot more, a lot longer than that, then that person is potentially only finding out that they got an invite to an interview letter well after 10 days, which was the old guidance. And now it is five days under the new guidance. And that is the period of time you have to contact the Home Office and say, well, this is why I've missed my interview. So short notice of interviews combined with postal delays alone is going to result in a lot of people missing interviews. But then there are other issues as well. So there was a big story on the weekend written by Lizzie Dearden for iNews. And that was about, it looked at things like people receiving letters in a le- in a language that they can understand. I've seen on Twitter, uh, someone had an issue where the Home Office wouldn't accept that the legal reps were on record. And so the claim got withdrawn for that reason. We've also heard many, many instances of people being in home office accommodation and not receiving letters because the home officers have shuffled them around and the person doesn't realise actually the onus is still on them to update the home office. You would assume, well, the home office is providing me with accommodation. Obviously, they know where I am. No, like that's not how the Home Office thinks this should be operating. The other issue I have with the new guidance is they have, where a person has missed one interview, they have all of a sudden introduced all of this new process and new requirements for what happens around this second interview. And my issue is that this guidance around withdrawing asylum claims, it is supposed to be for people who are actually not complying with the system and perhaps have absconded so that claim can be withdrawn. What they are doing doing is they're making it more difficult for people who are actively trying to engage with the home office to prevent their claims being withdrawn. They are setting time limits, they are setting evidential thresholds saying you have to satisfy the caseworker. It's just, it's hugely, hugely concerning, as is the fact that these changes were very obviously rolled out with the focus on clearing the backlog of legacy cases as quickly as possible. But this guidance does not only apply to legacy, it also applies to flow cases which are the cases that have been made since the 28th of June 2022. And so we are going to see this problem of wrongfully withdrawn cases spreading to this group as well. So it is just this hugely frustrating disaster that is happening. And there will come a point where this has to be resolved. And in the meantime, these people are again being kicked out into the street. But with no active asylum case, they are going to need assistance to get it reinstated, particularly for people who don't speak English. And where are the resources in the sector for this? They just don't exist. And there's no legal aid lawyers. So it's just making it exceptionally difficult for these people. And they're going to end up in some very nasty situations as a result of this. Yeah, it's um, it's really not a good way to um, to run an asylum system or, or reduce the backlog. And you know, these people are still here, like you say. So um, you know, they're not being removed. They haven't vanished. They're, they're just here, but much more vulnerable. And it's much more complicated to deal with their cases in future. Also, just to flag up that there is new OISC guidance on 
what level ones can do in relation to reinstating withdrawn asylum claims. And I've included a link to that in the article as well. Next, we are moving on to family immigration. And there is a case I'm just going to mention, which is um, the title of the article is Objective Evidence Must Be Considered When Deciding Very Significant Obstacles to Integration. So this was uh, an appeal, Article 8 appeal, where the first tier tribunal judge held that although it was not reasonably likely that the appellant would face harm on return to St. Kitts, she did subjectively believe that she is in danger. And she also subjectively believed that the authorities were not willing to protect her. And so on that basis, the judge concluded that on the balance of probabilities, this would mean that she would be unable to integrate back into life in St. Kitts. And the appeal was allowed. The Home Office appealed that decision and the upper tribunal allowed the Home Office's appeal. The appellant then proceeded to the Court of Appeal and they emphasised that the test is a practical one and said that it was not apparent that the first tier tribunal had considered anything apart from the appellant's subjective fear. Whereas the two areas of objective evidence relating to sufficiency of state protection and the appellant's connections to St. Kitts were important and should have been considered. And so the Court of Appeal dismissed that appeal. So this one is by Alex Piletska. It's about um, in-country settlement applications for kids and the different sole responsibility requirements. And really in particular, um, a sort of little bit of the rules that I have to confess was was new to me, which is the option in paragraph 298 of the immigration rules, which is where you are applying for um, leave from within the UK, basically, where you're applying for settlement from within the UK. So you're already here. And as well as the normal bits that we're familiar with, with sole responsibility uh, and so on. There's an, another option, which is, or the child is no- normally lives with this parent and not their other parent. And ba- basically, I, I was rewriting our normal um, sole responsibility exclusion undesirable blog post recently to sort of bring it up to date. And I got a bit baffled by this. And Alex has done an explainer for us on where it might be relevant. And to, to sort of cut a long story short, um, the, the particular example she gives is, for example, where you've got a points-based system, migrant of some sort, skilled worker or whatever, and they apply for settlement. And um, rather than going through the whole sole responsibility palaver, they could then, once they are settled, make an application under paragraph 298 for their children relying on the normally lives with um, provision. So it it's actually potentially quite useful, not 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 necessarily in, in loads of different situations or whatever, but you know where it does apply, it's quite a useful one to know about and to, to make use of. So thank you very much to Alex for that write-up. Alex initially had the title of this as something like getting around the sole responsibility requirements. I'm always nervous that we'll like trigger a rule change with the Home Office, but they don't listen to this, so I can mention that here. Sorry, Alex, I changed your title just to make it a bit more neutral. <laughs> Um, next article is me. What happens when relationships break down on the Hong Kong British National Overseas Route? So I'm just going to mention this one briefly. This is a change that came about following some work done by Rights of Women, amongst others. And essentially, the Home Office has recently updated its guidance to clarify that Unlike in other routes, leave under the Hong Kong BNO route cannot be cancelled because of relationship breakdown. And the article explains how all of that works. So if you have a client in that situation, then that is the place to go. Next, we're on to sort of general immigration. So the first one is the statement of changes. 
Oh, this is from Hell Week. I remember all of this. Statement of Changes, HC246. Rules finally amended to provide for victims of transnational marriage abandonment. Most of the changes in this Statement of Changes relate to the EU settlement scheme and travel document requirements for school groups visiting the UK from France. There are also three new appendices, and I went away and counted. Those three take us up to 81 separate appendices to the immigration rules, which I think we can all agree is very, very simplified. The three new appendices are Appendix Bereaved Partner, Appendix Victims of Domestic Violence, and also Appendix Statelessness. The last one uh, makes some quite big changes which send dependents of stateless people into needing to use Appendix FM, which will inevitably make life more difficult and complicated. However, there is good news in the statement of changes and that's why I put it in the title and that is that provision is finally being made in the rules for the victims of transnational marriage abandonment and again that is something that has involved a huge amount of work by lawyers and NGOs to make this change happen so it's really good to finally see this in the rules although I have to say the fees are pretty wild £2,885 for those entry clearance indefinite leave to enter applications there is the possibility of a fee waiver but it does seem to me like a bit of an unnecessary additional barrier that people are going to have to go through because presumably most will need to use the fee waiver process given how extraordinarily high that fee is yeah i mean we're talking about people who've been abandoned in another country without their passport and are stranded you know the idea that they're gonna have access to those kind of funds is just absolute nonsense that i hadn't picked up on that actually that's a bit shocking the fees came later they were announced separately, so they weren't in there. But um, I spotted that that had been laid. And yeah, pretty pretty shocking. But I mean, is any of this stuff shocking anymore? Yeah, awful and shocking aren't quite the same, are they? Certainly awful. Right, I'm dealing with a, uh, a Supreme Court decision now. Now, this is another write-up by Alex Paletska, and um, I, I quite liked her introduction to this which um, draws parallels with um, the the long-running Game of Thrones um, television series and she suggests that there'd be many twists along the way not everyone kept up with all of the increasingly labyrinthine plots and by the end of season eight everyone was just glad it was finally over and I have to say I feel seen there because I kind of given up trying to follow some of this stuff you know the arguments that were being quite properly put on behalf of these claimants were very technical arguments and clearly the intention of the home office in drafting the rules hadn't been for these these kinds of people who'd who had these kinds of experiences of um basically gaps in their lawful residence it wasn't intended to you know that they, these people would qualify for 10 years of lawful residence and yeah it, it's been very long-running litigation it looks like it's finally drawn to a close with this supreme court decision and I'm not I'm not going to go over the details here. I think it doesn't apply to that many people. You can read the the write up for yourself, which is very clear by Alex. And essentially, it's these kind of the p- people who've been caught out by their dis- their application for leave being valid at the time it was made, but then later being invalidated by a failure to pay the fee or to do the biometrics, or people who've got kind of repeat applications where the first application was in time but was rejected, and then a second application was made, and kind of you know they're kind of non-standard situations, and you can see why people were, were just desperate really to get this to work because they're really 
bad drafting of the immigration rules um, seemed to kind of open a way potentially for them to to qualify. But clearly, you know, it just wasn't the intention of the rules that they did. And the Supreme Court has, has followed that kind of intentional approach in the end or purposive approach in the end. So their cases have finally been dismissed. Okay, next is me and we are back to Hell Week. We had two different articles looking at the government's five-point plan to reduce immigration, which came off the back of the ONS net migration figures, I think it was. And the two articles are the one I wrote, Government Attack on Families as Minimum Income Requirement to Rise to 38700 and then one which was more, What Should UK Employers Make of the Government's Five-Point Plan to Reduce Immigration? So that was more of a points-based system focus. So just to run through the five-point plan, this was that people People on health and care visas will no longer be able to bring family dependents and care firms must be regulated by the Care Quality Commission in order to sponsor workers. The next one is that the skilled worker salary threshold will be increased by a third to 38700 the care sector to be exempt from that. The second article highlights the difficulties that that uh, threshold is likely to cause employers, particularly outside of London, given how dramatic regional differences in pay are. The third point is ending the 20% salary discount for roles on the shortage occupation list and reforming the list. So the Migration Advisory Committee have been asked to review the occupations on the list in light of the new higher skilled worker salary threshold. And then a new immigration salary list that I have speculated will be Appendix Immigration Salary List with a reduced number of occupations will be published in coordination with the MAC. So it doesn't quite look like the death of the shortage occupation list yet but we wait and see I suppose the fourth one was probably the most controversial and that is the minimum income requirement for family visas for British citizens and those settled here was to be raised to 38,700 following an outcry this has been reduced to 29,000 again as we discussed earlier I don't know if this is the Home Office trying to fool us into being happy with this but £29,000 as a minimum income threshold for families trying to live together in this country is still completely unreasonable. Reminder that we are talking about British citizens and people who are already settled here. I say here as though I'm in the UK and not in Australia. And then the the plan is that that will eventually be increased from 29,000 to 38,700. It's going to generate so much additional work. People, more people will be pushed into exceptional circumstances, applications. It's just, it's going to be ridiculous. And it will mean that families are separated for longer. It will harm children. There was a report also out last month that I wrote up that looks at the harm caused to families by the minimum income requirement. And that is as it currently is, not under this new threshold, which is just so much higher. And then the fifth point of this five-point plan is the Home Secretary asked the Migration Advisory Committee to review the graduate route to prevent abuse and to protect the integrity and quality of the higher education sector. Um, Colin, thoughts? You don't no. have to have any. You are allowed <laughs> to have no thoughts on this. Uh, uh, just quickly, I mean, the, the, so that that just starting with where you finished on on the idea that people making 
um, applications under the rules counts as abuse is something that we saw repeatedly from the new Home Secretary cleverly. And it's really, really wrong. It's really, really irritating. The fact that people make an application that's available to them and bring their dependents with them is not abuse. It's just making an application. It's just, you know, if, if that wasn't what the rules were intended to achieve, or it's not what the government intended to achieve, that's fine, but it's not abuse. Um, so that that's just really bad language to, to, to be using in this context. And then I, I don't really trust myself to talk very much about the minimum income requirement. I just found, I found this whole episode so depressing, so exhausting, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to generate work. It's going to generate misery is the main thing for a lot of people. And it won't even have very much of an impact on overall migration numbers. It's just one of those kind of symbolic bits of policy that is basically anti-immigrant. It really causes people to suffer, but it doesn't really have any kind of serious impact on immigration numbers because, you know, a lot of people will have to apply under the exceptional circumstances stuff like you were talking about it's really punishing to have to do that it's much more expensive it puts you on this ridiculous 10-year route instead and it's just so much more stressful and precarious as well so it might reduce the numbers a little bit which, which is hardly something to celebrate you know breaking up families keeping them apart is what the government's trying to achieve with this you know that's that's the whole point of it anyway i, I can feel myself starting to, to get carried away so i think we should just move on to to, to talk about something else Well, EU settlement scheme is our next little section and you're up. Uh, So this is, it's quite a technical but depressing decision from the upper tribunal. So this is Dani and D-A-N-I, non-removal human rights submissions, Albania, 2023 UKUT 293 IAC. And it's about durable partners again, um, I think. And it's people who hadn't applied prior to Brexit, basically, for recognition as a durable partner. They didn't have one of these relevant documents. And the upper tribunal is saying, yes, Yet again, it's just not that interested in hearing appeals from these people. And they set out the various different kind of procedural reasons why they think that applies. And they're sort of saying really that there's no automatic human rights claim in these applications, which which is a slightly surprising proposition, I think, considering we're talking about durable partners. So yeah, I'm not I'm not sure the upper tribunal is right on these ones, but um, but they're, they're very strongly sticking to this line. So um, it would require some intervention by the Court of Appeal, which I think we're unlikely to see, um, I have to say. So yeah, that 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 covers that, Sonia. I think um I think the next one was yours, wasn't it? Yes. This one is um the title of the article is Home Office Unaware of the Extent to Which Mystery Stamp Has Been Used to Grant Entry to UK in Error. So this is the Upper Tribunal's case of Alaraj, and essentially this is an Albanian national who was mistakenly allowed to enter the UK by an immigration officer who used a stamp described by the Home Office presenting officer as a stamp which is regularly encountered but the use of which is shrouded in mystery. And it also does not appear to grant any form of valid leave. As a result, Mr. Alaraj did not meet the requirements of Appendix EU, nor fall within the scope of the withdrawal agreement as... As with the previous case, he could not meet the durable partner definition. So this case is all to do with what powers various different areas of the Home Office have to grant different types of leave. I was far more obsessed with the random stamp, to be honest. But it's also worth highlighting that this, as with the previous case, this is another Chalik-type situation where an EU national and her partner were delayed by COVID from getting married. And they are then trying to deal with the fallout from that 
and the difficulties in meeting the durable partner requirement. Anyway, I think it is quite an interesting case. I'm still fascinated by this stamp. I mean, is it still being used? I think not because it was granting leave under the regs, um, the 2016 regs. But yeah, just what are they doing? And who made the stamp? And how, how did they make it? How many stamps are there? I, I, it's just weird. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, was it was it was it widespread? Were there sort of multiple so sort of entry points many which were questions. using the same stamp, or what? I really want to know. <laughs> it's like going back. It's like going back to sixties and seventies when um, this, you know, immigration officers basically sometimes haven't got a clue what they were doing, and you, you come across these kind of random stamps and stuff. Um, but yeah, right. I think there's another um, Albanian case now, which um, which I was down to cover, and this one, I think this one's been the subject of a subsequent write up in the Telegraph. Um, so the case is called Kolikaj or Kolichach, um Deprivation Procedure and, De- and Discretion, Albania. 2023 UKUT 294 IAC. And the reason the Telegraph have written this up is not for the interesting procedural stuff, but because um, the guy who was concerned, um, I think, had been convicted of some fairly serious criminal offences, basically. And the it, it, it's quite a serious issue, this one. And I think you, you, you wrote this one up, Sonia, and what you say at the end is, is absolutely right. It's about whether notice needs to be given that somebody is having their citizenship withdrawn, basically, whether they're being deprived of their citizenship. And uh, essentially, the upper tribunal say that it's there, there are circumstances where it's possible to do that, even though normally procedural fairness would require you to be given notice and for you to have an opportunity to to respond. And the Home Office didn't want to do this in this case, they said, because they were concerned that the person concerned might then uh, revoke, um, sort of voluntarily uh, renege their, their, their other citizenship, which would mean that their British citizenship then couldn't be taken away from them. And the upper tribunal accept that argument essentially and say that, yeah, that's fine. And like you say right at the end of the blog post, the it's not hard to imagine that this is going to lead to a lot more no-notice citizenship deprivations, basically, because they've been given the green light to do this and the Home Office loves to exploit these kind of procedural issues, especially around citizenship deprivation, um, to make people's lives as difficult as possible to, to bring challenges. So it's a pretty um, it's a pretty depressing decision and it's likely to lead to um, more problems down the line. Yeah, when you first said that, I was like, what did I say at the end of that article? Then as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. Give the Home Office an inch and they will take a mile. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so the next one is me. Again, this is just the briefest of mentions um, because it's something that's been litigated a bit last year already uh, court of session agrees restricting judicial reviews of the upper tribunal is lawful this is essentially the court of session has concluded in a case called s-o-o-y and secretary of state for the home department that the judicial review and courts act 2022 has been effective in removing the ability to bring a cart eber judicial review of upper tribunal permission to appeal decisions except in very limited circumstances. And that is the same conclusion reached by the High Court of England and Wales in the Oceana case, which we also wrote up last year. Next one is over to you, Colin, on tribunal appeals. Yeah, so I was um, looking for the tribunal stats on this because I've been expecting there to be problems basically with tribunal appeals given the increase in the number of asylum refusals and we've we've banged on about this on the blog previously that there's going to be an increase in refusals for two reasons one is because just the sheer number of decisions that are being made even though relatively few people get refused 
that the absolute numbers of people getting refused is going to increase just because of those sheer numbers. And then secondly, because the Home Office is targeting high grant rate countries to do their decisions first, once they gradually sort of make their way through those, which it looks like they finally have done towards the end of the year, basically, um, then they'll move on to lower grant rate countries. And so we'll see the proportion of refusals rising as well as the absolute numbers. So um, it's something to watch out for. But um, on, on these stats, which I think are for July to September, so don't include you know October, November, December, there was no sign yet at that point of asylum refusals jamming up the system. The Overall caseload is up 20% on last year to 31,000 outstanding appeals, which is pretty high. Um, Waiting times haven't increased, though. Overall waiting times for immigration appeals is 43 weeks. Average for asylum appeals is a little bit longer than that at 48 weeks. which, which is, you know, almost a year, and it was about half that prior to the pandemic. So it, it's been going up. And then it looks like the upper tribunal is in a bit of trouble as well. Number of judicial review applications was up 3%, which isn't very much, but disposals down 23%, leading to a 47% increase in the outstanding caseload to 1,400 cases. So that doesn't sound good. So yeah, I, it, I say it's only up to September, and I imagine that the situation has actually gotten quite a lot worse since then because of the huge number of decisions that we saw coming through towards the end of the year. The next one is an article by Ian Halliday, Court of Appeal, raising an entirely new issue in a determination for the first time is unfair. So I think this was a family reunion application where the Home Office refused the application as the money transfers um, between the family members were sporadic and there was insufficient evidence of the family's income and expenditure. The first-tier tribunal judge then dismissed the appeal as they were not satisfied that the sponsor was the source of the money sent to the appellants. This was an entirely new issue. It had not been raised by the Home Office in the refusal letter or by the judge at the hearing. Uh, Essentially, the Court of Appeals said that a huge amount will turn on whether the point is an obvious one, which the appellant ought to have anticipated. And although good news for the appellants in this case, the court was clear that the decision was reached very much on the facts of this particular case and would not have a widespread effect on how the tribunal deals with appeals more generally. Next one, we're moving on to a couple of detention articles now. The first one is Home Office criticised by High Court for five very concerning features of detention case. So these very concerning features, I mean, they include things that will be familiar to many people who have worked on detention cases, difficulties in arranging a legal visit, lack of response to pre-action letters, assertion that bail had not been granted when it had in principle. And this one was uh, quite ridiculous, saying that a new application for accommodation should be made in circumstances where the Home Office had refused the previous application, but had not told the claimant or his lawyer about it. But the main reason I want to mention this is um, I think this may be the first time we have seen any sort of decision, and this is just interim relief, that mentions the new detention powers in the Illegal Migration Act. The judge said when, when saying that there was a very compelling case that detention had been unlawful to date, which includes the period where the new detention provisions were in force, he said that that is so even if, as the Home Secretary contends, the new provisions inserted by the 2023 Act have the effect that the underlying power to detain 
remains even if detention no longer complies with the Hard Isle Singh principles. I will say a little more once I have completed this interim relief judgment about that contention, but there's nothing more in the interim relief judgment, so I don't know where he's going to say a little more, but, you know, I'm on tenterhooks here. I guess we wait and see. I don't know if there'll be more if and when there is a a full decision on that. Um, The next article I just wanted to mention is, it's called Are Safeguards from the Harm Caused by Immigration Detention Working? And this mainly focuses on Rule 35 reports, which is something I think it's useful, even if you are familiar with them, just to have a refresher. So the article provides an overview of some of the safeguards available for people who are held in immigration detention, focusing particularly on people who have been victims of torture. And these safeguards are all the more important following the expansion of detention powers under Section 12 of the Illegal Migration Act. Despite those changes, it's been made clear so far and repeatedly that the adults at risk guidance will remain applicable to any person who would be particularly vulnerable to harm in immigration detention. There's also um, some interesting background to some of the policy changes that I specifically asked Beth to include because I was in some of those meetings and I I thought it was interesting. Um, It was things like the Home Office alleging abuse of um, the use of medical legal reports, etc. Anyway, go have a read of that if you're interested. Um, Yeah, I think it's a really useful article. I'm just going to mention an updated article, which, you know, again... I have updated the what is the no recourse to public funds condition article. And that is just to take into account the most recent loss by the Home Office, which was in relation to people outside of the normal um, family human rights routes, potentially being able to access public funds and just kind of not putting the brakes on that, but just highlighting that it's not it's not going to be as straightforward as some people um, may have believed when when that case came out so if you haven't looked at that in a while then I would recommend going back and um, and having a look because I, I think I updated some other bits and pieces as well so yeah go go read that right thanks Sonia and then I think it's um, last item is from me which is just to um, remind everybody that we have now um, finished and published our OISC Level 2 course on um, free movement, which is now available to members. And basically, it covers the whole of the OISC Level 2 asylum and immigration syllabuses. And it, it's just, it, it's, you know, it's available to all members. That's all there is to say about it, really. Um, it only costs £22 per month to join up, plus VAT. So it's £24 in total if you're not, if you're not reclaiming the VAT. Um, and we are planning on running a live version of it in April. So bookings for that will probably open in the not too distant future, actually. It's been a huge amount of work putting that course together. Jasmine has done a great job getting it all ready. And yeah, that's it for that month. So thank you very much for listening. And it's goodbye from me and goodbye from you as well, Sonia, I guess. Yeah, the, the sun has set. I'm sitting here in darkness now. I just realised. Yeah, you. I, I, I sort of had. I, I looked at my browser window for, for the first time in a while, and you've sort of disappeared I, I, basically I in the meantime. You just see a faint outline yeah. of you. Yeah. Although, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yes. Bye, everyone.